Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I am joined today by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hi, bro. How are you doing? Great, Allison. How are you? I'm good. We have a great show today, because today we are going to talk about why you should care about a company's corporate culture when you invest. Morgan Housel is going to join us to talk about five biases that are making you bad with money. And bro's also going to answer your questions about how to break up with your mutual fund. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So the New York Times took Amazon to the woodshed over their corporate <laughs> culture recently um, in an article that we've we've been used to seeing uh, articles that tell you how awful it is to work in an Amazon warehouse, you know, fulfilling orders and getting books and putting them in boxes. Uh, but this recent article talked about how being in corporate in Amazon is actually soul crushing and brutal. Um, all that was in the New York Times, for example, working all hours, crying at your desk. Um, don't even think about having kids. <laughs> it was competitive to a fault. Lord of the Flies. No was food. Also a no food. No food. No free food. <laughs> right? They even talked about that, which is like, come on! I thought you were a tech company. Um, so, I assume everyone at the Fool read this article because not only do we care about Amazon as investors, we also care about uh, corporate culture. What did you think about the article? Okay, so my first reaction whenever I see an article like this, it's it's based a lot on anecdotes, right? So they interviewed I, over a hundred people, right? Former Amaz- Amazon, right? And Amazon, so I don't know how many employees, but it's in the tens of thousands. The point is, I think for any company, you could find a hundred people who have some um, sad tales to tell. Now, as you hinted at, though, Amazon has already been in the news over the years for working conditions. So I think that's part of why it was easier for people to believe some of this stuff. Um, so my my first thought was I. I a little skeptical in terms of how pervasive all this stuff is. But I did think that to a certain degree, I'm a little concerned that people will take this lesson from Amazon, and, and it was with Steve Jobs as well, is that for to be a really successful company to take over the world, you kind of have to be a little cutthroat, you have to be brutal. Steve Jobs had that reputation for being um, brutally honest with people, and according to the New York Times article, that Amazon, you you are encouraged to rip apart people's opinions. Now, if you read some of the responses of Amazon employees, current and former, a lot of them are saying that's all a bunch of bull. It might have happened here and there, but not everywhere. But to me, like that's one of the concerns I would have is that people take this lesson. Like, if you want to be a great company, you actually got to act like this. Right. Um, it was interesting to see some of the responses in the comments to people just being like, "Look, it's work." Suck it up. <laughs> That's right. Right. One of my favorite lines was that some Amazon employee or executive pointed toward Microsoft and said, "We don't want to run a country club <laughs> because they have all that nice stuff that you hear about at Google and those companies." And I have to say, there's a part of me that agrees with that. I mean, you know, the Motley Fool believes in its culture, and we have lots of perks too. And every once in a while, I think, well, I don't <laughs> do we as a company need to provide that? But it comes from a good place, so to speak, and that is um, many of our investors here believe that the culture of a company is reflected in how successful the company becomes, and thus the stock price, right? I mean, if you make a good workplace for high-performing people, you're going to have low turnover. They're going to be willing to work hard for you, maybe even for less pay, but because the company environment, the flexibility, something like that is um, worth it. So they stick with you. And, and turnover at a company is 
can be deadly because every time someone leaves and you have to hire someone, you have to train them up again and things like that, which is another point that made me question a little bit about the New York Times article. I mean, if it's that bad to work at Amazon, why aren't the very smartest people avoiding them and going to Google and Facebook and Microsoft? Why would you choose Amazon if it's that bad? Yeah. So, for when I was reading the article, when I was in the middle of the article, I was like, boy, I wonder if I should keep investing in Amazon and should buy stuff. There, lit- as I was reading the article, I knew that there were two boxes from Amazon sitting on my front stoop while I was reading it. That's so, exactly what my wife said when I told her about this. Like, it makes me not want to buy from them anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And are, do you really think you're not going to buy? From no, them I want to. I want to. I basically, my bottom line is, I want to see more about whether this happens or not. But would that affect if if this stuff turns out to be more true than not? Would that affect whether I buy from Amazon? I think it would. Yeah. Well, I just want to say, anyone who works at Amazon, if you're listening, I really appreciate the work you do. <laughs> I really love Amazon Prime. So, thanks. Yeah. If you're if you're going through hell, thank you for going through hell so I can get stuff delivered in two days. Oh, that makes me sound like such a bad person. <laughs> Why can't you behave? So, today we have Morgan Housel joining us. Hi, guys. Thanks for coming. He's a senior analyst for Motley Fool One with an expertise in behavioral finance. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So, what are we talking about when we talk about behavioral finance? Because it sounds like a college course that I maybe would have audited. It does, but I think it's really important. I think for decades and decades, almost a century, finance was taught as purely a math based subject. You learn the formulas and you plug your data into the formulas and it gives you an answer, and that's finance. And I think there's a big appreciation in the last 10 or 20 years that finance is much closer to something like psychology or sociology, where what really matters, where you can really set yourself apart, is by understanding and knowing and kind of mastering your own mind. And most of that is just acknowledging and understanding the behavioral biases that everyone falls for, just little tricks that your mind plays on yourself that steers people in the wrong direction. In finance and investing. Man, I'm so glad you did that because that was a great segue into <laughs> talking about the five biases that we're going to talk about today. How that was convenient. so convenient. It's almost like we planned this. Almost. almost. We actually didn't, though. It just happened. <laughs> really? This is, I don't know. Let's just pick five biases. So, actually, there's like many, many biases out there that yeah. um, that impact us when we're investing. But you're here to talk about five yep. today for our listeners to consider when it comes to managing their money. And the first one is the Dunning-Kruger effect. Yeah, I, hope this, I hope this has to do with Nightmare on Elm Street. Because it sort of does. It does. <laughs> no, it doesn't. What, what, what the Dunning-Kruger effect is, is when you are so unknowledgeable and such a novice at something that you don't know how bad you are. So the unknown unknowns. The unknown unknowns. And it's, it, you know, this is really just something that obviously afflicts people who are just starting out in investing and whatnot. There's this really fascinating study done uh, about 10 years ago, where there's a group of finance professors that asked a group of investors, how do you perform as an investor? What kind of returns do you earn? They asked them. And then they looked at their brokerage statements and saw how they actually performed. And the worst investors, the people who earned the worst returns by far, were the worst at telling them how, what they thought their actual returns were. So these people were so bad at investing that they didn't even have the skills or the knowledge to go and calculate how bad they were doing. They were so bad that they didn't know how bad they were. But they were so happy. And then someone had to crush them and be like, actually, and they had to crush them, you're right. awful at but, this. But we, but we see this a lot, I think, with new investors, that they don't know enough to know how bad they are. And they need someone yeah. to kind of hold them... The, 
reveal the curtain and show them how poorly they're doing. Because it is easy to forget, especially in the market that we've been in, it's easy to forget that, well, I don't need to compare myself to the benchmark of the S&P. Look but how awesome I'm doing! Right. But, and then when I compare myself to the S&P, then it's just... And you know, that oh, was really true, ugly. I think, in the late 90s, when a lot of people were earning what looked like high returns. Said, Look, I earned 15 20% of my money, but that was in a year when the S&P earned 35%. So they think they were doing really good, they were doing really well, but when you pulled back the curtain and gave them a little more knowledge about how well they should have been doing. It was a disaster. All right, next one we're going to talk about is the frequency illusion. We were actually just talking earlier about we thought there was a baby boom here at Molly Fool One of us thought there was a baby. Yeah, boom. maybe. Okay, maybe. <laughs> maybe and, the and one then, who was having a baby. And then and then we brought up that no, there's probably actually not. It's just because maybe one of us was paying more attention to it. And that's exactly what the frequency illusion is, is that it seems like things happen more often once you start paying attention to them, but they're not. And I think a good example of this in investing is after the 2008 market crash, there was so much commentary about today's volatile market, stock market so volatile, for years after that. But the three years after the market crash of 2008 was below average volatility. It's just that we were paying more attention to it because we started, we were aware, for, we were aware of it from 2008. And we see this a lot with like shark attacks in the news. Once yeah, there's one, yeah. then we start reporting on them: shark attack here and shark attack there. But if you but if, right but, now it's like grizzly bear attacks. But if you if you look at the That's data, true. it's in the news all the time: That's grizzly right. bear attacks. And for a lot of that though, if you look at the data, it's not that there's that there's more occurrences. It's just that we start paying attention to it more often. And also, there's a grizzly bear in my backyard right now. I don't know why. Right, and a shark in your pool. Right. I don't know how it got there. But you Let's get think... the both of them together and see what happens. But I guess surprisingly, it's always been there, and I'm just now noticing it because it's in the news. Yeah. All right. The next one we have is the curse of knowledge. Yeah. Uh, and this one maybe I want to I want to guess that it's the opposite of the Dunning Kruger effect, but it maybe pretty, not. No, it pretty much is. It's oh, okay. when you have people like stock stockbrokers or financial advisors or college professors. Who don't understand that average lay people uh, think differently than them and can't understand the language and jargon that they use. Sounds elitist. It kind of is, yeah. So, but, but the effect of it is you have stockbrokers that will sit down with their clients and start throwing around all kinds of lingo that might seem basic uh, to the stockbroker, but the client has no idea what he's talking about and they're too afraid to ask. Uh, where we also see it a lot is with economic professors, who a lot of their theories and their models are based on this idea that all consumers will act rationally and are perfectly informed. And that's the basis, that's the foundation of their theories, when in reality that's total nonsense, because most people don't have the kind of math and economical thinking and experience that college professors do. So it just leads a lot of people astray, because you have these finance professors and stockbrokers who say, this is how you should be acting in theory when the world works totally different in practice. Right. That's part of the whole thing about biases. Really, the other word for it is, is mistakes, right? I prefer, but it sounds better. It's a yeah, no, it sounds a, more. It does sound more. But they're all mistakes, and that's part of the whole. That was part of the root of behavioral finance to begin with. Is that there was this assumption for a long time that people were rational and they always made their own, right. made the right decisions. Whereas actually, it turns out we're mostly emotional. I'm, most money decisions have to do with emotions and feelings, in my opinion. Yeah, right. more than intellectual, rational decisions, and that's. The basis of all of this stuff. Yeah. Right, we make the we make the decisions with our emotions, and then we spend all this time trying to rationalize right, exactly. it and make it sound like it was actually a logical choice. It's like trying to get the brain into it afterwards. Right after your gut made the call. All right, uh, the next one is called extreme discounting. Right, 
That's when you want a small reward today over a larger reward in the future. This sounds like the kids in the marshmallows. Study. I, no, I hate the marshmallow test. You hate the marshmallow I hate test. The marshmallow test. What? Okay, so this is the one where they put some kids in a room and they said, "Okay, here's a marshmallow. You can have one marshmallow now, um, but I'm going to leave and come back. And if you don't eat that marshmallow, I'll give you two marshmallows." Was right. That the one? Right. Yep. And then they track those kids for decades, and yeah. the ones who were able to resist were smarter and better looking and more successful. But Morgan yeah, hates stuff. this study. I hate it for a Why couple do you reasons. Hate it? Okay. Yes, for one, it's cited in every single psychology. Book she must be article. How I know it. <laughs> it's like, and I feel like everyone who writes about it thinks they're like, oh, I found this crazy test. And it's like, okay, it's a nine thousandth time I've read this in the last year. That's the first reason. <laughs> Number two, there's actually some evidence that it never really happened as people explain it. There were several different versions of the marshmallow test, and some journalists kind of blended them together Typical to make a cool journalist. story. But if you go back and read the original literature, it's not really as it actually happened. It's similar, but it, it's not as clean and simple. The third reason, I think this doesn't get... We're kind of going off track here. Is that okay? We're not going the off third track. Reason, the third good. reason I hate the marshmallow test? You were the one who ate this the one marshmallow. Get, <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. This doesn't get talked about a lot. But the kids who actually did well in the marshmallow test, it wasn't because they had more self-control. It's because they distracted themselves. It wasn't because they sat there and looked at the marshmallow and said, I'm not going to eat that because I want another one. The kids who were able to put it off are the kids who like, were so ADD that they put them in this room and then they started like playing with their shoes and singing a song and banging on the walls. And that's why they didn't eat the marshmallow because they were distracted, not because they had patience. So the lesson and is like being, be being, ADD. And that being, is the yeah, secret. That's what's funny about it. Like being distracted is probably the opposite of patience. Or that's, close that's to true. it. That's true. All right, so I'm not gonna. Okay. I'm not gonna trot out the marshmallow study ever again. <laughs> I appreciate that. Because Morgan says it's bunk. I appreciate and that. And in fact, fluff. That's right. <laughs> hey. Whoa. Thank you, Rick, Rick the producer. Rick from the control room with the singer. <laughs> Tonight's show is completely different, folks. <laughs> All right, well, let's let's then talk about, okay, extreme discounting. Right, so it's wanting a small reward today over a bigger reward tomorrow. Some discounting is, is rational, but I think you have extreme discounting investing where people who have 30 years before retirement are constantly focused and investing for returns of the next quarter or the next year. And it's just this extreme focus on the short term when your goals are long term. You see, as almost all money managers are graded by the quarter. How did you perform last quarter? When most investors are investing for the next years or decades, there's this funny story from Larry Fink, who's the CEO of BlackRock. He was having lunch with the president of one of the largest endowment funds in the world. And the endowment fund said, our goals are generational. We're investing for the next generation and our grandkids' generation. And Larry Fink said, that's great. How do you, how do you measure your performance? And the fund manager said, quarterly. <laughs> right. I mean, that, and that's extreme discounting, and it's pervasive across investors, amateur or professional. But fund managers are forced to do it to a certain degree They're, because the investors are focusing on the quarter. If you're as a as a fund manager, if you have a bad year, you're fired. Money is going to go out pull out, or right. eventually you're going to be fired. So, so even though they know they should be focusing long term, they're forced to because the biases of the shareholders. Right. So it's our problem. It is. It's true. In the end, folks, it's all your fault. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's this. So all extreme discounting is is just intense focus on the short run when your goals are way longer down the road. Which, at the Motley Fool, as long term investors, our goals are way down the road, at least three to five years. Right. Right. We actually <laughs> were having a discussion earlier today with some colleagues about how um, if you worked in like Richmond and you wanted to get a job with Philip Morris or so, oh, and, and same with um, some of the other companies, you kind of had to smoke. Like you had to fit into the culture there. And we thought about that's sort of a short term 
view of things, right? I'm going to smoke today to have this job. I'm going to pay for it right. 20, 30 years down the road. Right. But hey, I want that but job now. But it's like, if I smoke, I'll have this job in 20 years. But you won't because you're smoking and you're going to die. That's right. Oh. <laughs> it's early retirement, folks. <laughs> All right. The last one we're going to talk about is the bias bias. Right. Which, did you make this one up? Yes. Okay. All right. I couldn't think of a better name for it. But I think the bias... But when I started writing about bias, I noticed that there were a lot of people who effectively said, that's cool, but this doesn't apply to me. And I think that's what the bias bias is, is thinking that when you're reading about behavioral psychology, uh, behavioral finance, and all the mistakes people make, you think it's something that applies to someone else and not yourself. And I think almost everyone thinks this. They read about... Uh, you know, extreme discounting and frequency illusion. And they think, oh, you know, that's something that other people will fall for, but I would never fall for that. I'm a long-term thinker. I would never do that. But almost everyone does. Uh, Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize uh, in, in economics for his work in behavioral finance, you know, he, he, he said something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing, he said something like, you know, when I'm doing this research, I realize that I'm writing about myself. Because th- these mistakes that, that hurt other people, the only difference between... Kahneman and these people is that he's aware of it and he understands what's going on, but everyone is making these same mistakes. So is awareness the first step? It's, it's the first like step. Acknowledging you have a problem is the first step to. That's right. Yeah. So and, you know, and, and there and there is there there definitely is an extent to if you're aware of these and you think about them and you come up with a plan that you can make yourself a better thinker and help yourself versus where you were before. But I think a lot of this these are natural biases that have been ingrained through evolution that I don't think. Virtually anyone is going to completely cure themselves. But that's where if you're aware of them, you can set up your portfolio and set up your expectations to kind of work around them. But you're never going to get rid of them. Got to hack yourself. In that vein, which bias do you find yourself falling for most often? To be totally honest, I think probably bias, bias. Yeah. You think you're better than everyone else? Yeah, but I think everyone does. Yeah. No one wants to admit, oh, I'm totally flawed and I'm a bad thinker and I can't control my emotions. Because I think if people thought that about themselves, they'd have a hard time making it through the day. Most people, just to make it through the day, have to think, I'm making good decisions. That's, like, that's how you can wake up in the morning and look yourself in the mirror and say, I'm making good decisions. But a lot of people don't. Existential angst with Morgan Housel, people. Oh, I'm going to make a bad decision. (laughs) (laughs) One after another. (laughs) But I I mean, I've... I've done that not with money as much. I, I always, as Allison will know, uh, compare money to diet and health and exercise. And I, I'm often grabbing something. I'm about to eat it. And I know I shouldn't. And I know it's not going to help me accomplish my goal of losing weight or staying in better shape or avoiding having three heart attacks like my dad. But I watch it in slow motion coming towards my mouth. (laughs) And I know I'm making that bad decision, but I do it anyhow. I know a lot of very smart financial advisors who are some of the the smartest investors that I know. They give great advice. And every time I hear him talk or write something, I'm like, this guy knows he's doing. But then you become friends with them and you learn about their personal life. And their personal financial situation is a disaster. And that's that kind of goes along here. It's yeah. it's really easy to think you're doing everything right and to be able to talk about how to do things right, but actually putting it in, into practice is harder than it looks. Yeah. And well, before we go, Morgan, what's your best piece of advice uh, for our listeners for their next steps when it comes to mastering their their biases? Is there 
maybe a book they can read, or what, what do you think would be most helpful for our people? Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, is kind of the culmination of his life's work. It's a, just an amazing book. It's kind of a dense read. It's not bedtime reading, but it's, it's just an amazing look at the human mind and how we trick ourselves. It's called and, Thinking Fast and Slow. Yeah, and the interesting thing about him is he has a financial advisor. So despite all he knows, he doesn't manage at least all his own money, and that's a good thing too. Is that if you get a trusted professional who can sort of stop you when you want to make some of these big mistakes, that's probably helpful too. Funny story about his financial advisor too. He he's done very well. He won the Nobel Prize. He gets paid a lot for speaking. Not the advisor, he's, but Daniel. Uh, Daniel Kahneman has yeah. done well for himself financially. So a few years ago, he went to a financial advisor and he, and he said, "I don't need to become richer." I just want you to protect my, I, I just want to live out my days in comfort, but I don't need to make any more money. And his advisor said, I can't work with you. <laughs> and you've had to find a new one. Really? And he uses that as an example of financial advisors not understanding the human element of risk taking. Right. Yeah. Kahneman said, yeah. like, I don't have the psychology to handle a lot of market risk and I don't need the money to begin with. So just keep me steady. And the financial advisor said, that's not what we do. No, you I'm know, here to right. make you money. Right. So, so, we went out <laughs> found, so we found someone else after that. Yeah. Morgan, you had a running column in the Wall Street Journal, which yeah. means that your face was what they call stipulized. Yeah. They did. They made your little dot, little dot picture. And you know what's crazy about that? They do those by hand. That is crazy. The journal, the journal started doing this like 120 years ago, and then they just kept the tradition. And they not only kept the pictures, but kept the original way of doing it, which is a guy in the back with a pen, just dot, 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 dot. It takes them 10 hours per picture to do it. Were you happy with the result? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it. It doesn't, it doesn't look like you. It looks like you with like... 20, 30 pounds. That's what people say. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. like chubby, chubby you. Yeah. Chubby you. <laughs> You've been fatified. <laughs> You've been fatified, but I would still take financial advice from you if that makes you. It makes me feel better. That makes you feel better. You yeah. maybe didn't look as handsome as you are, but you still, you still got the brains in there. <laughs> well, Morgan, thank you for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're going to have you back. All right. And we're going to talk more. Great. I work upstairs, so it's no problem. Wonderful. Good. <laughs> Thanks. received a ton of mail from you guys, which is awesome. Uh, and here's where I feel bad, because it's going to take us a while to get through all the letters, <laughs> but we're going to do our darndest. Uh, the first question this week comes to us from Boris. He writes, in my IRA accounts, I have funds from Vanguard, Amana, Royce, T-Roy, T-Row Price, Barron, Hennessy. It is a bit of a mess. Some funds I have kept for 15 to 20 years. Others are relatively new additions. I was wondering if you can provide some suggestions and tips on deciding when to sell a fund. I normally look at performance compared to other funds in the portfolio, but it's hard to compare across different sectors. I try to use the Morningstar rating, but each fund seems to have a handful of those as well. Do I look at the overall rating? Great question, Boris. So, uh, Morningstar is my go-to source for information about mutual funds. You can go to Morningstar.com, you put in the quote for the mutual fund, and then you hit the performance tab. And the important thing about evaluating the performance of a mutual fund is you have to compare it to similar funds. To use an extreme example, you would never compare a bond fund to an S&P 500 index fund. You want to be comparing international funds to international funds, small cap funds to small cap funds. On that performance page, if you scroll down, you'll see category rank. The lower the number, the better. So if you see that your 
fun is in the category rank and has a ranking of 10, that means it is in the top 10% of those funds for that category. You want to look at a longer term period, at least five years, 10 years. But actually, studies show the number one predictor of future fund performance are expenses. So I would look first at expenses. You want below average expenses, then look at performance. And below average is? Below average, well, it depends on the type of fund it is. And Morningstar will also, on the expenses, will show, it'll give fee level. It'll say low, below average, average, okay. high. Um, so do that. Then performance, management tenure, you want someone who's been managing the fund for at least five years. The Morningstar star rating, Morningstar acknowledges that that is a backward looking analysis that is not necessarily predictive. It has some predictive characteristics a little bit, but for the most part, ignore the stars. It just tells you what it did, not necessarily what it's going to do. All right, cool. Well, then this is when we segue into Sam's question. Sam writes, I've invested in some mutual funds, but thanks to your advice, I've been thinking about transferring to lower cost index funds. Yay. yay! That's my yay. I'm putting in the yay. The problem is that I get wet feet about paying thousands of dollars in income taxes for selling and rebuying such a large portion of my holdings. Do you have any soothing thoughts to help me take the plunge? Well, it's a great question. It's a bit of a dilemma. It depends on the tax bite because you, let's say you have $10,000 in a fund. You sell it because of taxes. You have to pay 1000 so you're left with 9000 so you're really asking, should I have just kept nine ten thousand in the old investment, or am I going to be better off putting nine thousand now that I pay taxes into this new one? And you have to basically think, like, okay, how long will it take for that smaller investment in my new investment to overtake the other one? And it really depends on the degree to which your current investment stinks compared to an index fund. If you have a fund that is high cost, underperforms its benchmark by two three percent a year, I would say do it. For sure. I mean, if it's a long-term holding, you're going to hold for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, you're going to be better off in the end. If you have a fund that is only um, marginally worse, worse than a index fund, if it's still below average costs, which many actively managed funds are, it may not be as compelling. The other thing to keep in mind is you don't have to do it all at once. And chances are you bought the mutual funds at over different periods. So you actually, if you let's say you got into a mutual fund through five different purchases, you put in two thousand at one point, and two thousand at another point, and two thousand at another point, you actually can choose which of those portions to sell. One might have a huge capital gain, which would cause lots of taxes. The other one maybe is just a marginal capital gain. You, it wouldn't cost you so much in taxes. You can tell the fund company, "I just want to sell those shares." You don't have to do it all at once, and you can identify the shares. But you have to contact the, the mutual fund company on how to do that because each uh, company has a little bit of their own way of letting them know. Otherwise, there's a default when you tell them to sell, and they're going to choose the shares that you sold, and they may not be the best ones to sell from a tax perspective. All right, wonderful. Thanks, bro. My those, pleasure. Those great answers. All right, Boris and Sam, hopefully that was helpful. That's actually going to do it for today. It is. That is. That's all we got for you. The show is edited by Rick Engdahl with theme music composed and performed by Dayana Yoakum. Our email is answers.fool.com. I want to thank everyone who went to iTunes and gave us a review. We love you. We love you. Thank you. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Fool on. Fool on.